0: The strict religious observance of ultra-Orthodox Jews can come into conflict with broader society, even in Israel. High birth rates and low employment mean that uh, many ultra-Orthodox Jews live in poverty, and that can lead to community tensions. On stories featuring ultra-Orthodox Israelis, our Middle East correspondent, Eric Torchek, has encountered quite a bit of aversion to the media too. But one story on the unlikeliest of topics gave Eric a whole new perspective on Israel's ultra-Orthodox community. We were meant to be meeting at a wig shop, a boutique, high-end, classy place for the most discerning and fashion-conscious ultra-Orthodox women in Tel Aviv. Instead, we were standing outside a row of dingy apartments in the ultra-Orthodox neighbourhood of Bene Brac. Was this the right address? Wrecked and dirty prams, rusting bikes and scooters crowded the steps of each building, Ultra-Orthodox men in white shirts, black coats and large black hats rushed past, not looking at ABC producer Fuad and I waiting on the footpath. Except for one man, who was pushing a baby in a pram. He conspicuously moved closer to us, alarmed by these two men wearing coloured clothing amidst crowds of black and white. He parked himself and his placid baby next to us, staring. Then he pushed the pram at Fuad making him move so he could position himself directly across from me, all without speaking. I made eye contact, wondering if he wanted to talk, but he just stared at the space between us, clicking a pumpkin seed between his teeth. Click. 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 Stare. I looked at Fuad, who shrugged. The standoff continued, with more clicking. I didn't mind. This was actually better than some of my previous interactions with ultra-Orthodox men. When doing a story about ultra-Orthodox men resisting Israel's conscription laws, some allowed us to film in their giant Bible college, while others stridently resisted my attempts to film them demonstrating on the streets. While filming another story in the same ultra-Orthodox neighbourhood of Tel Aviv, one man tried to fight me, and I hadn't even been filming him. One Friday evening, crowds of ultra-Orthodox men and children blocked our car on Jerusalem's main highway, shouting, Shabbos, a remonstration for breaking the Sabbath by driving. Police in a truck barreled in, scattering them like skittles before blasting the few who remained with a water cannon. So by comparison, one man standing uncomfortably close to us and clicking a pumpkin seed between his teeth was a fairly mild experience. It ended with the arrival of Miri Balin, stylist, fashion blogger and social media personality, a six-foot tall, colourfully dressed 39-year-old mother of five, who also happens to be ultra-Orthodox. Even though Miri carefully follows the many rules of ultra-Orthodox dress, I didn't notice she was doing so. Married ultra-Orthodox women are required to cover their heads in public, but I didn't know Miri's long brown hair was a wig, Her bright orange jumper was at odds with the normally muted tones worn by many ultra-Orthodox women. Her long, flowing skirt was so fashionable, I wasn't paying attention to the fact it also met the strict modesty demands of the ultra-Orthodox world. Miri's made a name for herself dressing like this and publishing pictures and videos on the social media platform Instagram. She calls it modest fashion, downplaying its religious origins. She says Kate Middleton, now the Duchess of Cambridge, is an exemplar of this trend, which also appeals to women who are not religious. Modest, she tells me, now means classy. A researcher of ultra-Orthodox culture at Tel Aviv University, Siemens Salzburg, told me the same thing. The increased number of ultra-Orthodox women in the workplace was leading to some mixing of fashion ideas. Dr. Salzberg now owns kosher clothes she saw her ultra-Orthodox colleagues wearing to work, and the religious women in her workplace are now being more daring with their dress. Most of the fashion nuance was admittedly lost on me, but Miri said it's allowed religious women to express themselves while avoiding criticism from their strict communities, and she showed me a remarkable example of the religious fashion business in the basement below this dingy apartment block. We threaded our way past the broken prams, bikes and cheap toys, past giant rubbish bins in the dark recess below the building, scattering stray cats as we walked, down some steps to a small door. Disappointingly, there was a buzzer instead of a secret knock, but three excited female faces appeared and the women inside led us into a shiningly bright space. White walls, pink panels and downlights gave a glamorous look to this basement workshop and styling studio, one of Bene Brack's most sought-after wig makers. There were six ultra-orthodox women inside, busy making wigs that cost from five to thirteen thousand Australian dollars. The hair is human and comes from Russia and Sri Lanka. Blonde and red are the most expensive colour, and each wig is made specifically for the woman ordering it. The process of making a wig for each person takes two to three months and is a creative endeavour. It's art, the wig makers proudly told me not just anyone can do it. In the back of the workshop, individual hairs are sewn and threaded onto tight black nets, giving the impression of thick, lush hair that's difficult to distinguish from someone's natural growth. I didn't realise all the women were wearing wigs, so expertly were their fringes threaded and hairlines disguised by styling. In fact, wigs like this are guilty of being too good, Some ultra-Orthodox rabbis, who set the rules of dress and behaviour for their communities, have banned them, saying instead that women must shave and cover their heads with scarves or knitted caps. This makes the wig makers very angry. The Torah, the Jewish Bible, doesn't say women must be ugly, they told me, only that they must cover their heads. These women are nothing like what I'd been told to expect from the ultra-Orthodox. Women marry young and families have an average of seven kids. Women also work to support their families while many husbands study the Torah full-time. The female employment rate for ultra-Orthodox women is the same as the mainstream Israeli population, while for men it's only 50%. Early marriage and heavy burdens of child-rearing and work mean ultra-Orthodox women are often portrayed as victims of a repressive religious environment that's run by men. But these bright, vivacious women were not victims – They were successful entrepreneurs, soon to move out of the basement to a bigger studio. This place was filled with laughter and smiles as we took photos and had the wig-making process explained to us. Men don't normally come in here, especially not foreign men, they told us, so our visit was unusual and exciting. In fact, I realised I'd had almost no interaction at all with ultra-Orthodox women before. I see them everywhere, but they don't normally speak to me. The experience was so different to my many interactions with ultra-Orthodox men. Some have been positive, but the human tendency is to remember the violent, negative ones much more strongly. I wish there were more opportunities like this to see the ultra-Orthodox world in such a funny, friendly way. Many Israelis resent the ultra-Orthodox for their extremism, reliance on government allowances and refusal to serve in the army also for opposing secular Israelis' non-observance of religious rules, such as taking public transport on the Sabbath or selling non-kosher food. I understand all of that, living as I do in Jerusalem, Israel's most religious city. But now I understand that there's a lot of progress and a lot to like about the ultra-Orthodox. And to appreciate it, I just needed to look more closely at what women were wearing. Eric Torchek reporting from Jerusalem there.